Well, I want to let you in on a little secret. It was planned. The worship team, I can't get this thing moved. That's all right. The worship team, uh, they didn't miss a verse, okay? That's not what happened. Uh, that's actually one of my favorite hymns. It was written by a guy named Robert Robinson. All right, he was actually 22, 1757. That's when he wrote it. Well, the story goes a little bit like this. Uh, Robinson was part of a group of young men, particularly in that time in England. It was common, I guess you could say, to have runaways, guys whose parents, you know, the past, whatever, and they would just kind of become a gang of young men and just run the streets together. It It was normal. Well, Robinson was part of this group, and he struggled with a lot of things. He was uh, an admitted alcoholic. Um, he was violent. Uh, and his, his sole purpose, he would say, was to cause mischief wherever and whenever possible. Well, Robinson and his friends, they came up with a really good plan, right? They're going to go into a church, and they were going to just mess it up on like a Saturday night right before the service. And they get in there, and the priest is there. And so they all scatter, but he got caught, right? And so he sits him down in the church pew, and they start talking. And a few hours later, Robinson actually got saved. It was amazing. So what happened after that was essentially that from then on, he dove straight into serving God. Went to ministry, actually, full-time. Uh, began to preach and teach. And at 22, he wrote that song. Uh, but he didn't write it with the third verse. He actually wrote it with just those two verses that we sing today. And then he kind of went back to the refrain, etc. But that was all that was there. Well, as he kind of grew in popularity, uh, Robertson began well, uh, really well known as invited to a bunch of meetings, but he always struggled with these inner demons, I guess you could say. The alcoholism, the, the draw to sin was just always strong. And he had a relapse. And what happened was, is, is he was eventually expelled by his own church, and he ended up on the streets. His life was ruined. A few years later, he couldn't even recognize him anymore. He said he was on the public transport of that day. Uh, it was like a horse-drawn trolley. Seriously contemplating ending his life. As he was riding, uh, he heard a young woman singing. And of course, it was like that creepy moment that you get with like some guy in the subway. like He's staring her down. She's like, okay. <laughs> like, so she's singing along, and he realizes that the song that she's singing was his. Come thou found. He just listened, and she noticed. Obviously, there's this guy over there staring at me. So she looked over, and she said, I'm not, I'm not trying to be rude. I don't mean by any means to you know, annoy you. But then she went into like that Christian witness mode. She said, but what do you think? And the lyrics are powerful, right? I mean, that God would interpose His precious blood for you. What are your thoughts? Robertson looked at her and said, Ma'am, I'm the miserable wretch that wrote that song. I'd do anything to get half the joy that I had when I wrote it back. He got off the trolley. And he went back to the church. He repented. And within just a few years, he was back in ministry, restored completely. And he republished the song with a third verse. If you don't know the lyrics, it goes, I'm not going to sing it. I'm going to spare you. Okay. But, but the third verse is my absolute favorite. It says, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily, I'm constrained to be. Let your goodness, like a, like a fetter, like a chain, just bind my wandering heart to thee. 
And you can almost hear the brokenness when he says, I'm prone to wander. I feel it. I'm prone to leave a God that I love. So take my heart. Take it and seal it for your courts above. Last week, we rightly talked about the God of judgment, holiness, and righteousness, and He is. And to that, I say, Amen. Honestly, I would not have wanted that book. That's a hard book to preach because it's harsh, <laughs> but it's true. But this week, we get the other side of the coin a God that offers a second chance. That's what Ezra's about. A broken people getting a second chance to start over. Let's pray about it. We'll begin. Lord Jesus, I'm in desperate need of your help. If I stand up here and it's a performance of any kind and I don't have your power on me, it's wasted time. We're all wasting our time. I need your help. Lord Jesus, speak through me and let your word reign supreme and move in our hearts and help us to be changed so that not one person, including myself, will leave this room the same way that we came in. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Amen. Amen. Ezra chapter 1, you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Now, I will go ahead and tell you a couple things. Okay, Number 1. Finding a commentary on Ezra is ridiculously hard. Okay, Because I've never really sat down with a friend of mine and he was like, dude. It's like, what, bro? Dude, I was just in my devotions and I was reading Ezra. Life changed. Like, I mean, that does never happen, right? In fact, most of the people that I was like, yeah, I'm preaching out Ezra, like, who is he? Like, yeah, okay. Yeah, 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 Ezra. Okay. So, like, it's, it's just, it's a different message. And secondly, I'm an expository preacher and there's 10 chapters and I'm covering the whole book. So we're going to be here a while. Okay, not really. But anyway, but Ezra is like this enigmatic figure. There's not really a lot about him. The rabbis actually hold him in extreme esteem. They say that if the law of God was not given to Moses, it would have been given to Ezra. In fact, rightly so, we find out that as Moses brought the law the first time, Ezra returns them to Scripture the second time. I mean, he was huge, but he made no esteem for himself, and we reckon that's probably purposeful. But Ezra was a, a scribe, and he was a man who was just in the right place at the right time, by coincidence. To help God's people return. See, a lot of people say, well, Ezra built a temple. Actually, he didn't. Zerubbabel built a temple, and Nehemiah built a wall. But the rabbis say that Ezra built the nation. That's the difference. But we actually, if I jump in, we start in in chapter 1, verse 1. As we start going through, you actually learn that Ezra doesn't even come into the picture until chapter 7. So the first entire section, chapters 1 through 6, is laying the background. And if you actually read Ezra, it reads kind of like a liturgy. It starts you with the sovereignty of God, and then it reveals the failure of the people, which then gives us the grace of God in return. So we'll start there in Ezra chapter 1, hear the word of the Lord. In the first year, King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord aroused the spirit of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and to put it in writing. Okay, pause. So, let's catch up a little bit for those of us who, you know, we don't know the whole story what's going on here. So, point number one is there's incredible, incredible political turmoil. So, what do you mean? 
Well, essentially, Nebuchadnezzar II came into Israel and he burnt the temple down. It was actually the second time that he conquered Israel, burnt it to the ground, took them out, and they moved them 12 to 1,700 miles away from their home. And they were captive in Babylon. This became known as the Diaspora, the dispersed group. And they were sitting there captive to one nation, and then the Persians came in, and they're captive to them. And actually, as you go throughout, you find that there's continuous war and rumors of war. In Ezra, you'll cover three kings. You'll cover Cyrus, Artaxerxes, and uh, you'll also cover Darius. And between the two, there was Ahasuerus, which was Xerxes. You say, what does all that mean? All that meant was every second of their life, something new was happening to turn everything upside down. They finally get into Babylon. They find a little bit of rest. Persia comes in. Okay, everything's changed. Well, then, you know, Xerxes take over. They go to a war with Greece. And then Xerxes is killed by his bodyguard. Now you have this guy named Artaxerxes who hates everybody. And they go from one extreme to another. There's no consistency in their life. Everything's chaos. You say, okay, big deal. We have to remember something. One, we've seen the sovereignty of God. I, I love what Arminius said. I, I'll, I'll quote it again. The free will of man can never hinder the will of God. We see that God was going to accomplish his plan no matter what man did. That's awesome. But we also see the consequences of their sin. There was no rest for God's people because God's people failed to obey many, many years ago. You see, here's the reality. They went in, and you can imagine as a Jew, they, they, that's when the synagogue system actually came into effect. And they would sit there in service and read the Torah over and over and over again. And they would hear how God would say, I lay before you life and death. Choose life. Because if you obey me, you'll be a kingdom, you'll bless all nations, you'll have power, you'll have, you'll have uh, grace, you'll have favor. But if you disobey me, I'll destroy you, I'll remove you. And you've come face to face with the reality that the chaos in your life is totally self-inflicted. You say, well, what does that mean for you? A lot of times I get in conversations with people and they say, I just feel like everything's falling apart. I feel like I can't get any clarity. And often it's because we as the children of God refuse to listen and we cause a mess for ourselves. That's the first consequence. But next, there's also a divided nation. Ezra chapter 2, there's the decree. And what Cyrus basically said was anyone in Israel who wants to return. Not only can you return, not only can you rebuild a temple, but now I'm going to allow you to have my troops if you want it. Ezra actually turned it down. I'm going to allow you to have money. I'm going to allow you to use the treasury. Whatever you need is completely yours. And in Ezra chapter 2, they, they, they go down and they basically count up all the people that took them up on the offer. It's a little over 42,000, about 42,360. You say, wow, you're really smart. No, the CSB counted it for me. But anyway, you had 42,000 people that made this trek. And you say, that's a lot of people. But the reality is, is that the most conservative scholar impossible on this commentary would say that there is at least a million or more Jews dispersed in Babylon. Okay, so here's what that means. Less than 5% of God's people even cared to go back. They became apathetic. You said not only does sin bring chaos, but sin brings apathy. There becomes a point, and Paul talks about this, where the heart becomes callous and you cease to care. And this is where God's children were. There was political turmoil. There was a divide nationally. 
And they were lost religiously. So what happened? Ezra chapter 3, those who did go with Zerubbabel, they went back. And they laid the foundation. They had the first worship service they had ever had in a very long time. Awesome. We talked about it extensively in Sunday school, right? Super cool moment. And they, they started to build and they tried to figure things out. But you had this weird scene where the young men were rejoicing and the old men were weeping. What's that about? Well, the young men were rejoicing because they're just happy to be back. But the old men wept because they knew what they'd lost. Sin brings chaos. It brings apathy. And it leaves scars. There are certain things that you can't get back. You can't just fix. It's not going to be the same. And they were conflicted personally. So you say, what do you mean there? Well, and I'm rushing through this part so I can get to chapter 7 with Ezra's actually there. But the conflict came in chapter 4. Essentially what happened is as they're trying to reorganize and start construction on the temple, a weird scenario comes in. Samaritans come in and say, hey, we want to worship God too. That's awesome. Yeah, Jesus is so awesome. Okay, not really Jesus, Yahweh at this point. Yeah, Yahweh. Okay, great. And they come together and they say, we want to worship with you. We've been worshiping Yahweh since before you guys even left. And now after you guys left, we've kind of taken over the worship service here. We'd love to be part of this. And then they have this really awkward moment where Zerubbabel's like, hey, you know, thanks, but nah, we're good. Right? And we're, no, no, thank you. Well, why? Because they didn't worship Yahweh alone. It wasn't a pure worship. They worshiped Him with all these other gods. And so you see this internal conflict because as soon as that happens, all the Samaritans turn against Him. And they begin to write letters to the king saying, if you let them build this temple, they're going to rebel. And, and it becomes a huge issue because they're just trying to obey God and keep His worship pure. Here's the reality of it, check. You get to this point, your life's a mess. Things aren't going right. There's apathy around you. you, you I mean, just you know, mustering up the, the desire to even read your Bible or go to church or care anything about God is just hard. You've cost yourself years or moments, something. Can't get it back. And then a reality checks in that if I do try to worship God, now it's going to bring me conflict personally. My friends, my spouse, my, my kids, that they're not going to accept it. This is, this is the consequence of where we were. And that's what Ezra reveals. He shows us the magnitude of our sin. So you had a people who were destroyed and marred by sin. They're trying to come back. And then we get a return of Ezra. Ezra chapter 7 is where we're really diving a little bit more. If you'll turn there. Ezra chapter 7 is an interesting point. Not because of, not because of who he was, but because of who he wasn't. Ezra 7 verse 1 we begin reading, it says, Now, after these events, during the reign of King Artaxerxes of Persia, Ezra, and it goes through his lineage, was commissioned, verse number 6, to, to come up from Babylon. 
He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. Now the king granted him everything he requested, because the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, temple servants, accompanied him to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month. And then skip down to verse 10. It says, Now Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord, to obey it, and teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. So, here's essentially what happened. Catch you up on between, between chapters of 5 and 6. The personal conflict made them stop building the temple. And now 50 years later, later Ezra comes into the picture. So they'd been there and the temple building stopped. And then you had prophets like Haggai and others who moved them to rebuild the temple. They finally got that cleared and Ezra arrives. Now Ezra wasn't special in who he was, but what was special was what he was bringing. Because even Artaxerxes said, I'm sending you with the law of the Lord that is in your hand. What's the point? I want you to understand the heart of Ezra was a return to Scripture. That's it. You see, here's the reality. They had a temple. They would soon have a wall. They had leadership. They had governorship. But they had yet to have true worship. You say, why? Because where the Bible is absent, so is worship. But our worship is centered specifically on Scripture. And by the way, worship is not simply singing a song. It is living it out. It is the fact of not only knowing knowing what God says here, but obeying what God says out there and teaching others to do so. And that's all Ezra was determined to do. So this morning, we look at our lives and we say, I, I desire to worship God. Well, that begins and ends with our obedience and understanding of Scripture. Period. Matt Redman is one of my favorite worship singers and leaders. I love him. Redman wrote the, uh, wrote the song, uh, Getting Back to the Heart of Worship. Well, the, the reason he actually even wrote that song was because when he was in England, uh, in his church service, his pastor got up one morning and said, I think we've missed the point. <laughs> We've become a social club, but we've failed to become an active church. He said, so what we're going to do, we're going to have an experiment. Until I say otherwise, we're going to remove all the instruments. We're going to remove all modern everything. And we're just going to start the Bible, and then we're going to start singing psalms. And we're going to work our way back to where we're mature enough to where we can process the rest of it. Redman was like, this is weird. Because <laughs> he's a musician. He's like, I don't like any of this, but okay. He said after a year of doing this, his life was changed completely. Because he realized that worship was not entertainment. He realized that worship was not a social club. He realized that worship was an adherence and a love for the Word of God and the Christ of God. And that's it. And then telling others about it. This morning you said, I need grace. It's found in His Word.
Faith come by hearing, hearing by the Word. Our grace starts with our return to His Word. Not only do we have the heart of Ezra, but we have the preparation of Ezra. We have a really interesting scene in Ezra chapter 8. Ezra chapter 8, and it says, Now these are the families, the heads, uh, the genealogical record that go through it. And all the people that are going with Ezra. And verse 15 is interesting. He said, I gathered them at the river that flows at Ahava. And we camped there for three days. And I searched among the people and the priests, but found no Levites there. So then I summoned the leaders, he gives their names, and I sent them to Edo, the leader of Kasaphia, which I'm probably butchering these words, but with a message for him to his brothers, the temple servants, that they should bring ministers for us, for the house of our God. Okay, so here's what happened. Ezra gets together, he's on his journey, he's going to go back to Jerusalem, he has the word of God, but you see he understood that worship was not simply just that. It had one more level, and that was that he needed the people of God with him. So what do you mean? Well, the Levites were the temple ministers. They're the ones who did the sacrifices. They were the ones that were ordained by God to actually run the worship. You say, what does this mean? Not only is it a return to God's word, but it is a return to God's people, his community. Let me put it this way. Worship is meant to be done corporately. We're in this together. You see, God's immediate grace is His Word that guides and teaches and moves us. But God's sustaining grace is His people who uplift us. Hebrews chapter 10 warns us that we should never forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Not because there's some superpower being in numbers, but because I need you and you need me. And as we see the day approaching, we encourage each other and we keep each other going. That's what worship is. Worship is not simply looking up at God and realizing His sovereignty, though that's part of it. Worship is looking at your brother and realizing their need and loving them. And Ezra said, if we're going to worship God, we need His people. Hey, let me me make it practical. I really, really, really want to live my life for God. I really want to worship God. Okay, first, read your Bible. Great! Basic! Obey it! Awesome! By the way, you're not going to do it. You're a sinner. You're going to fail. You're going to fall. You need people around you. More practically, I need you. You need me. Kind of. We need each other. The image is this. uh, Paul writes, uh, talks about the church being the body of Christ. And I thought about it. I said a lot like this. I said, here's my thumb. Okay. Now, if I cut that thumb off, two things are going to happen. One, the thumb's going to die. Okay, obviously. If we just leave it on the ground, the thumb dies because the body gives the thumb strength. That makes sense? So, you by yourself in this lone wolf Christianity, you say, well, I I can do church at home. That's great, but you're going to shrivel and die spiritually because you don't have the body giving you strength. So what happens when we decide not to be part of our group, when we decide, I'm just not going to go to church because I don't feel like it, we're missing the strength that God intended for us to receive that day. Worship is corporate. But then here's another thing. If I were to cut my thumb off, my entire hand is marred, right? And so now the body is weakened. Not only do you need us, but we desperately need you. 
When we fail to be in our place in corporate worship, that means that there is somebody who desperately needed a blessing from you and you weren't there to give it. We work together. You see, Ezra knew that our need for His Word and our need for His people is where we would find God's grace. Go to Nehemiah chapter 8. You say, what does Nehemiah and Ezra have to do together? Well, so I know in the English Bible they're separate, okay? When the original Hebrew text, they were not. They're actually one big scroll. They went together. So uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, we have an interesting account. Now the temple's been built. The wall's been completed. Everything is in place. But their hearts haven't really been revived yet. You see, we can have the infrastructure surrounding us. But without those two things, His Word and His people, it just doesn't work. So, we get to uh, Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 1. It says, Now all the people gather together at the square in front of the water gate. And so basically imagine an entire nation of people just standing there. And then uh, they, they began there at uh, the water gate. They, they asked the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel. Okay. Now jump down with me uh, in verse 3. It says, Now while he was facing the square in front of the water gate, he read out from daybreak until noon before the men, the women, and all those that could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Now pause. Okay. This was the longest church service ever. Period. Okay, so they get up and it's like sunrise, 6 a.m. And they're like, we ain't going nowhere till noon. See, I, my 30 minutes ain't bad. So anyway, so they, they get up there and they're going to read the whole thing. We're going to start in Genesis and we're going to end in eh, Deuteronomy. And they went through the entire Torah. And all Ezra did, Ezra was not some eloquent speaker who's like, now allow me to just pontificate. No, he just said, I'm just going to read this thing and we're going to try to work this together. And without going through every aspect, what happened was, as he stood up, he didn't stand because he was above the people. He stood so everyone could see him, everyone could hear him. Now in front of him, the Levites lined up. First biblical small group. Here's what happened. He reads the law, and then the Levites go to the individual groups and say, okay, now here's, here's how you're going to apply that. Here's what that means. Why? Because when you have God's people and God's word, then you'll find God's grace. You see, in this moment, they began to weep and cry and return. They're back. What does this mean for us? That means I don't care what happened this week. I don't care what happened the last 10 years. No matter if you're 10 or 90 or somewhere in between, God offers you grace. Right here, right now. Incredible. But all you have to do is accept it. By returning to His Word and joining up with His people. You're restored. Incredible. Now, I really wish I could end there, right? But Ezra has a super weird ending. But it's actually really beautiful. Jump back with me to Ezra chapter 9. Now, Ezra had arrived... And 
essentially he had put things in order and, and he was getting things lined up. He was going to have this worship in, in Nehemiah 8. But he's really lining up uh, the ordinances of the temple at this point. And a report comes back to him and says, Ezra, we've got an issue. The people have sinned. So the sub-point, the people sin. What happened was essentially they had started intermarrying. And it wasn't an ethnic thing that they cared about as much as it was a religious thing. Because the culture of that time was that, well, you know, you married someone who believes differently than you. You just worship both their gods. I mean, you just, boom, you have two gods in this house, and that's how that works. It was a religious mixing of the people. So much so that it actually says in Ezra chapter 9, 1 through 3, that the Levites were doing this. So the preachers were actually involved in this sin. So why was this a big deal? Well, because... This was the same sin that got them in trouble to begin with, right? Here's a little side note for you. Just because you may have overcome sin or conquered it yesterday does not mean you will overcome the temptation today. Your weaknesses are always going to be there, and this is a battle they would face forever. And here they go again. And so then and, uh, we find the Ezra, we find the prayer of Ezra. It was this humble turning, where Ezra gets together with all the leaders, and he rents his clothes, and he prays, and he says, you know, we've, we've sinned, and we're just asking for ourselves to be destroyed again. So what do we do? And you have a, a series of events that I titled the, the Grace of God for Ezra. So he lines the people up in chapter 10, and he says that they counseled. Now when it says they counseled, according to the, the tradition of it, Here's what that counseling really was like. You bring the couples in that had intermarried, and you offer the, uh, the spouse and say, Hey, look, we know you love whoever. You've established a family here. But you've got to convert. It's Yahweh and no one else. You say, well, that's kind of harsh. Well, yeah. But here's the reality. So if you go back to Ezra 7.26, you'll remember that they were given permission to carry out the law of Moses. Well, what that meant was is that the, the Persians, they weren't like the Romans later on. That meant the Jews could actually do capital punishment. And the capital punishment for heresy, for worshiping another god, was death. So here's how the conversation went a little bit further. If you don't convert, we have to kill you. That sounds rough, right? Convert, rock to the head, right? I mean, that's, that's essentially what the option was. But then we see grace instead. They said, we're going to give you an out. We're not going to force you to worship Yahweh, and we're not going to kill you. You can leave. How is that grace? Because it was the only alternative to having to wipe out 115 people right then. They could leave and they could return at any time they wanted if they'd be willing to leave their gods behind. What does that mean for us? When we're exposed to God's grace, it forces us to extend grace to others. It has to. God's grace moves us to act in grace. You say this week, I'm really not struggling. I mean, I'm obeying the Lord. I'm involved in church. That's wonderful. Who have you extended grace to this week as it was extended to you? 
That's the call of Ezra. For our grace to extend grace. So what do we need to do? I want to encourage you a couple of things. And I'll be done. My encouragement is simply this. That we get serious about His Word and His people again. The average Christian spends 15 minutes or less in Scripture in a week. I know. You can't obey it unless you know it. And you can't teach others about it unless it becomes important. Return to His Word. Return to His people. And find somebody to extend His grace to today.